Life Issues with Vicky Gibbons on UCB1. Thank you for listening to another Life Issues from UCB. Today's discussion is a difficult one, and at times you may be shocked by the experiences you hear about, especially when such a harmful and unnecessary practice is still being carried out, and not to a handful of girls and young women, but FGM, or female genital mutilation, is taking place every five seconds around the world. However, there are those who are not only trying to save girls, but also ensure this secretive practice is ended once and for all. I'm Vicky Gibbons, and I'm joined by one such anti-FGM campaigner, Dr Anne-Marie Wilson, who not only has trained in cross-cultural studies at All Nations Christian College, but has basic midwifery skills and is the founder of the charity 28 Too Many. It's good to have you with us. Welcome to UCB. It's lovely to be here with you again. Thank you so much. Let's start with that all-important lady, Fatima. You were in Sudan. It was 2005. A moment, as you describe it in the book, your Esther moment that changed your life. Tell us about Fatima. Well, she was a little girl that was um, had had some really traumatic things happen to her. She'd had... um, FGM, which was a cultural practice. I'm not quite sure what your listeners would understand by that, but basically she had her private parts cut, as is culturally the norm there, when she was five years old. And then life was carrying on for her. She got up to 10 years old and then some terrible thing happened and the armed militia came through at their village. They, Everyone was killed, her family, her community, and she was taken by a soldier Um, And she fell pregnant from that and was left for dead. So we found her seven months pregnant. I was with an aid charity called MEDA, who do relief and rehabilitation in war zones or natural disasters. It's a Christian agency. And I met her and we gave her a safe delivery when she was seven months pregnant. And I, I kind of remember talking to her the day she was going to be repatriated with a very distant third, fourth cousin's aunt in the other part of Suzanne, absolutely the other side of the country. We were in West Darfur. It's going to be right down in the south. There she was holding her baby. She was an 11-year-old child herself, and she was going to end up probably married as a third or fourth wife, probably not in very good circumstances. And I remember thinking, firstly, she's not the only one this happens to. This happens all the time. And secondly, what can I do? I was going back home um, on a short period of leave and I cried out to God and said, you know, what, what, what should we do? What, who will look after these girls when I'm gone? Really was my question. And he cried back and said, you will. And it's like, no, God, you know, I'm an HR manager. I'm white. I'm from London. I'm out here on a short assignment for a couple of years. How am I supposed to help something that's gone on for 2,000 years to be eradicated across across Africa, across the globe? But, you know, when the Lord is on your side, amazing things happen. I went back to my church. I don't think they were that impressed with the idea either. They thought I was completely bonkers. But with lots of grace and lots of patience and some training on the way, some wisdom from elders at church and elsewhere, Uh, I have got to helping end FGM and made a significant impact on the sector, really. And that's really what my book is all about. 
So going back to that moment in Sudan, I mean, you it wasn't your first trip to a, a situation like this. I mean, you have so many years of experience volunteering and within the aid and humanitarian sector. But was it the first time you were aware of FGM? It was actually. I had not become aware of that before. Um, I So I was completely naive to all this practice, to be honest. I don't know why I hadn't heard of it before, but I hadn't. And it seemed to me extraordinary that girls would be put through this level of trauma, actually, as what I thought. And having seen the impact on Fatima, um, I just thought that this is just, is human rights wrong, really, in the world? It needs to be stopped. That's really what I thought. You've gone on to give numerous, so many presentations in trying to raise awareness and help people understand audiences to hundreds of people. Perhaps in this moment you can share a little bit more about what FGM is, because there are different types, aren't there? And it has lifelong consequences. It does. It absolutely does. There's four types classified by the World Health Organization. The first is a removal of the clitoris, a clitoridectomy, it's called. I'll go with the biological terms and then people can look them up later if they want to. The second part is the same and the removal of the labia minora. And the third is um, the same again, but with the labia majora as well. And it's a large incision that needs to be sewn up. And the fourth is any other practice. It could be pulling or tucking or in putting in some acid or herbs or inserting cuts or all sorts of things like that, really. They are all horrific. And um, I suppose I would say all of them are um, ex- harm to the external genitalia of a girl, often from, from age birth up to marriage, often in their 20s. And it's done with no anaesthetic, usually in a rural setting, even if it is done with anaesthetic and clean instruments in a more medicalized setting, it still has the same impact on a woman and her woman's life and her ability to have normal sexual relations and a normal um, process of giving birth as well. And it can lead to lifelong trauma, psychological, um, post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety. It can lead to Um, poor sexual relations, which can lead to marital breakdown. It can lead to pain and um, urinary tract infections. One of the young women I know who was on our board for many years and is a big campaigner herself, she has become unable to have any family having had this as a a child herself. And she had many years of um, treatment in overseas European countries and they still couldn't enable her to have a child herself. So these are the sort of things which actually the people doing it in the first place don't really realise the impact and it's not actually what they really want. But they don't put the cor- they don't correlate the two things of the FGM practice, the genital mutilation and the actual impact on someone's health. What scale are we talking about such practices happening around the world? Well, we're talking about three million girls who've had this practice. We're talking about probably... 60 odd thousand who are at risk in any one time in the UK alone, probably at least double that in Europe, and probably 130,000 girls around um, who are at risk at any one time. Um, We know that's probably 130,000 
people who have had this in their lifetime. And we know that this is probably one girl is cut every five seconds in the world somewhere. It varies between um, a small amount in Uganda, but in the places it happens, it's almost in the 70s or 80%. We know that in um, Kenya, it's um, between a quarter and 100% of the people there because of the Somali population that live there as well, but it's three quarters of the Maasai population. We know that um, in the top few countries, it impacts on probably um, if we could get rid of it in about three countries, if it could be eradicated, then actually over half the FGM could stop because of the very high populations in Nigeria, um, Egypt and Kenya where it happens as well. It's staggering to hear you describe what is taking place, you know, as we are discussing this today on Life Issues. Dr. Anne-Marie Wilson is our guest today. She's the author of Overcoming My Fight Against FGM. And she, of course, is the founder of the all-important charity 28 Too Many. Now, you mentioned earlier that on your board you do have an anti-FGM survivor. Also in the book, you tell us a little bit about Mary Lazia. What is her story? Well, she's got a good story because actually she was somebody who um, could stand against FGM. She, she'd actually had FGM herself and actually she could stand against the practice in terms of what she was doing. We talked to her and actually found out that actually through her life story, She wanted to make a difference in her community. We hear about how she can actually um, stand up to her community, who she could actually make a difference and actually um, advocate for change in her community. And also she wanted to educate other girls as well. And she was prepared to stand out in the community and actually say, this is not right, This, this needs to stop. The reasons for FGM can vary, particularly when you look through different nations and different communities, but maybe you can help us understand why these kind of cutting practices exist. Yeah, it happens uh, traditionally because it's been going on since before, um, is, it, before Islam, it's before Christianity, it has no place in either of those holy books. We also know that it actually Um, was done in terms of preserving someone's virginity, perhaps when they were sold into servitude in past eras. We also know that it was done between different people groups when people were being moved um, at the end of war or invasions. What we do know is that it it was done to um, enable women to be able to work Um, as soon as they arrived in their new setting or because they would have a higher bride price as a um, to be married off to somebody else as a virgin as well those are some of the reasons for it but we also know to put the positive side that women want the best for their children there's no doubt about that but it's happened generationally ungenerationally and there's that where there's been countries that have very little education They haven't put the correlation together with the the health consequences with with what has actually happened to the girls as well. They don't realise girls can be traumatised and die in this type of context as well. So that girls have been 
dying and women have had miscarriages and they don't understand that some of this has happened as a result of the FGM. They don't put the two together. We also know that women can have fistula as well. That's the only other thing I was going to say as well, was incontinence from as a result of having children very young and then maybe having um, their, their urine and their, um, their back passages, all the pathways get messed up and things just go out in the wrong places, really. Here in the UK, there's an understanding that FGM does actually take place. And yes, this idea that it's hidden in secrecy. In other cultures, in other contexts around the world, is it more of an open practice? It's accepted, talked about within communities? It's still very much talked about within women's communities. So it might be something that the women would get used to, knowing that it was her job to make sure her girls were cut, to enable them to be um, have a good marriage in the future. Husbands would know about it, but they wouldn't know as much about the details, but they would be possibly in charge of making sure there was going to be a good marriage for their daughters, and this would be a requirement. In some cultures, the woman, the mother, has to inspect um, the mother-in-law, potential mother-in-law has to inspect the girl to make sure she is intact and suitable for marriage. These are the sort of things that have been happening. This has kept this carrying on, particularly in a rural setting as well. When you heard that call from God to do something about this problem, you described earlier that feeling of me, Lord, am I even equipped to go and do this? I, I imagine you had to upskill in so many different areas, let alone the human anatomy and medically what was happening. You know, you've gone on to do some amazing things in terms of your training, like with your basic midwifery, but also you mentioned there about fistula rehabilitation too. I suppose that they're things that I just decided were important. I mean, to start with, if you're going to try and take on a cultural practice that's been going on so long, I knew that I would be having to influence imams, Arabic leaders, lawyers, medical doctors. And, and I didn't really want to be told, no, this doesn't happen here, or that's not how it happens, or that's not what, what goes on. I mean, as it is, we know of cases in, in um, Egypt where a girl has died in a medicalized setting, and a doctor, for instance, has said, oh, oh, oh we were just cutting out her appendix, she had appendicitis. Well, now I know that's not true. But it was those sort of examples I didn't want to happen while I was around that people would just say, oh, no, it wasn't that. You know, you don't know what you're talking about, really. So I studied at All Nations College and did um, a degree in intercultural studies with uh, Arabic and um, with sort of Islamic studies, basically, Arabic and Islamic studies. And I also studied in um, basic midwifery in Pakistan and then um, practiced in Pakistan and then in northern Nigeria and so also where I did the fistula rehabilitation as well so that I could see what normal anatomy looked like and then what anatomy looked like when it had been cut and sewn up and also distorted with fistula as well so that I could explain that to people as well. Along the way you also welcomed new life and numerous babies that must have been an incredible experience for you. You know, I think it was, I mean, particularly as a single woman as well. I think I'm a godmother and I love being that and I love being an auntie in my family as well and seeing young people and my friends now are even have their children are having children. So I get to see enough people around anyway to not feel 
um, missing in that that term. But actually to bring a new life into the world is really an extraordinary privilege. And I think it just made me feel complete as a woman. Um, I didn't need to have my own biological children, but I had helped um, a number of women, at least 10 women with their babies to, to bring them through to life, really. And I think that is something that can never be explained to people, really. That's probably completed a joy in my life, really. Becoming a founder, leading an organisation, perhaps wasn't something on the to-do list, although you have done many things, but here you are, the founder and obviously leading 28 Too Many. Just recap, you've already touched on it slightly, but recap the significance of the name. Yes, it's it's named after the 28 countries in Africa that still practice FGM. We know it is practised in other countries, in um, the Middle East and in Asia, but not all of those were known about when we first started the charity. And because FGM is believed and pretty much evidenced to have started in Egypt and Sudan, those two countries, it's one or the other or both, I decided that it was good to, to eradicate it in that founding area because it would probably take out about maybe 90% of the FGM that happened at that time. So I decided that also if you're going to focus on one continent you can then deal with the cross-border issues because really the borders are often lines in the sand some of them have got very straight lines because they've been the the countries have been carved up by colonial leaders in the past but actually they're porous borders in many countries and actually people go from one country to another and particularly that's a good way of evading um, strong anti-FGM laws as well if the country next door is softer So it's important to cover geographical areas together. And we often find with FGM that it's countries that would have been joined once back in the day that have got the same sort of numbers and statistics of FGM. And more importantly, the same reasons for doing it that actually um, work. It's easier to work with them together as a group. And there are two key approaches to all that you do. Um, We'll get on to education and resources and training in a moment. The first, though, is all about research and particularly thinking more recently of the the legal context and laws and legislation in nations. Yes, that's right. And that's why even though the initial idea of the charity was to do 28 country reports, one on each of the countries, we quickly got through that, to be honest. We've done reports on each of those and we've done update reports and we've done specialist other reports like medicalization and um, we're doing one on on all sorts of legal aspects at the moment but we decided to to cover doing a law report on each of the countries that is dealing with FGM in Africa so that meant another 28 reports on top of the 28 we were already doing so that was a big piece of work took us two years to do that and our overarching report and we're actually doing something similar now for Europe as we speak so that will also address where people come from and settle in what we call the diaspora, such as the UK, it could be Australia, it could be Canada, the US, France, Germany, etc. because the practices carry on. So we decided we'd do that as well. Because although the law doesn't actually stop FGM, the law does make it, um, if with the law in place, it makes it much easier to implement something ending. Just explain, because in some of the countries that you are carrying out this research, it's not like you're going into communities. People are throwing their arms wide open with welcoming you to discuss something like FGM. No, that's absolutely right. And I think in some countries there's 
well, firstly, you're not really allowed to talk about this stuff. So certainly one of the countries I went to very early on in East Africa, actually, I took my report. I'd already um, we'd sent our report and I was going out with copies to go and work with people. And I was meeting the government that afternoon. I met a man in the morning who said, um, you know, have you thought about the impact of writing this? You talk about one particular organisation which is outlawed in the country. And actually, we're not allowed to use the term FGM in, in this country because it's supposed to be eradicated by the country government. And it's like, OK, <laughs> so that's not ideal. So I went to the government meeting in the afternoon and they said, um, how can you say you're meeting with 25 active organisations who are working against this when there is no practice of this here? The government doesn't allow it to happen. And it's like, that's a really difficult question to get out of. So I tried to keep a bit under the radar and sort of say, oh, well, we're here to, to correct our research. So if, if we find at the end of this trip, you know, we've got mistakes, then we'll correct them, really. So so that was my hot moment there, really. <laughs> mm. And a moment ago, you talked about how, you know, you can you can have laws in a country, um, but there is so much more that you do need. I'm just thinking of, I wasn't expecting to, to read about the cricket trip and you meeting that Kenyan chief and how he'd worked in the police, but shared that dilemma of, you know, in these remote contexts, by the time the police turn up, there's little evidence or no evidence to even carry out a prosecution. Yeah, I think that's really one of the difficult things. And, and FGM is a secret practice, really. I mean, in some countries, Sierra Leone, Liberia, places like that, it's actually, it's like almost like a secret society, really, particularly in Sierra Leone. Um, and that, that makes it difficult, actually. Even in Kenya, as, as, as you say, the, the, the police, what do they do? I mean, it does help in Kenya that they've created a system where you, you ring a number like 110, and then you immediately, any child abuse, any issue can be reported, which I think is a really good idea. I think that would be used, something useful to happen in the UK. Um, but that it doesn't mean that you've got the evidence. And I work closely with the Metropolitan Police here. Our charity does. And we've done something recently with Crime Stoppers as well to, to train not only the UK um, police, but border forces in the US and elsewhere, as well as some embassies as well. But their job is difficult. Um, if there's if there's a will, there is a way, and it's just a case of keeping up with the practice and getting very good information. That's what's happening on the ground, whether it's what flights go to where, what hubs go to where, and what's the pattern of people moving between countries, and um, even in a in a non-country of origin such as the UK, where people come, settle, and carry on the practice. You're listening to Life Issues on UCB. My guest today, Dr. Anne-Marie Wilson, who is passionate about helping protect those at risk of FGM and ending this harmful practice around the world, which is impacting millions of lives today. Hannah and Grace, what an amazing couple of ladies. I mean, well, you met them, first of all, when they were something like 10 and 12 years old. Again, this was in Kenya and they were pretty brave because this was through an educational project and they made a choice after being given information about FGM. What happened to them? Yeah, they were incredibly young, incredible young women, really. They had decided that they were part of a um, nomadic family, the Maasai people, who then become pastoralists because of famine. And they settled for a little while and therefore went to school four hours each way to and from school. 
but they settled and went to a health club. They learned about the problems of having FGM that they didn't realise before, and therefore they ran away respectively to two female relatives, an aunt and a grandma. And then they said to their community they wouldn't come home until they were protected, which is unusual, actually, that a grandma and an aunt would give them um, refuge. But the community was very reasonable and said, come home, come back, we'll talk about it. We will give you refuge and hear what you say. And they actually changed the practice. So that community stopped practicing FGM. And interestingly, years later, they got a, a Maasai Christian pastor coming and living with their community as well. So many of them are now Christian and go to church, which is amazing, really. So this is how change can happen. Why I like that story so much is it's, it's got no international people involved in it. It's Kenyans helping Kenyans with knowledge. Girls went to Kenyan school. They made the change happen themselves in their traditional way of making change happen by dialogue. And then a pastor came in and such the like. All that change has happened from within, not from without. And that's a really interesting point, because in the book, you talk a little bit about the idea of trying to find alternative ways of transitioning for a girl to womanhood. And that can be an issue for some communities in terms of trying to find something that is acceptable to what they have always done historically in the past. It is really difficult. I mean, I remember going to when I was working in Kenya, going on an equal opportunities training course, really. And I was the only white person there, the rest were all Kenyan, and they, they gave a bit of a hard time really to the West generally. And of course, I'm representing the West, saying, you know, it's all about feminism, and it'll end in marriage and divorce. And once you start giving women equality, then it all goes downhill from there on. And of course, I can see their points as well as <laughs> I had very strong views myself as well, which most of which I kept to myself. But that is the difficulty, how to keep the best of tradition or culture and get rid of the harm. That's what we advocate against. So sometimes I mean, there was a, a nun I met, a sister, a religious sister who did almost like catechism without FGM um, and so adopted a practice where it's almost like um, a confirmation class. And similarly, other people who've taken a, a rite of passage, but without the actual cutting. And I think that's very clever as well. It's to try and take the best of without actually um, saying that we need to actually cut flesh and damage people, really. I think that's the good thing, really. Can you eradicate FGM without challenging all the other issues, like, for instance, when you think of child marriage, when you think of acceptable violence and abuse towards women within some of the communities around the world? When you think of the lack of opportunity for some young girls to even access things like education because of the role that they're given within their family in certain parts of the world. It's incredibly difficult, Vicky. I think there is, the FGM sits in a cluster of issues, I think, with child marriage, definitely, and with harmful practices. I think it's about education. One thing is about education to make sure people understand what's going on and the correlation. I think we are getting to a stage with social media and um, the internet, I suppose, being more freely available that people are being able to access information more widely. And I think that does enable them to make their own choices, really, or make their own minds up. But actually, there will always be communities that protect people from that and don't let them see that. 
and and I think that's always going to be the hardest group to catch, really. Um, I know that in the UK, if you've got very, very orthodox people who are perhaps live in an intergenerational family group, they perhaps are, um, they don't, all the women don't speak the language, then it's quite difficult to get information up to people. But girls at school would learn about things like this now, certainly in the West. Um, it's a requirement to learn about FGM. Teachers learn about it and children do as well. So I think that's that's a good start, really. Well, let's stay with the UK context for a moment, because I can remember ringing you up at the time of, it was back in 2019 now, when that historic moment happened here in the UK, when we saw our first prosecution in regards to a mother and her three-year-old daughter and being found guilty of FGM. We have the laws again here in the UK. It carries, it's illegal, it carries a prison sentence being found guilty of FGM. And yet we've only had one prosecution. Yes, that's very tricky. And I often talk to the police about this. In in our law and order system, it's really innocent till proved guilty. In as an example, the French system, it's probably guilty until proved innocent. So in France, you will have a right to go and inspect a girl or inspect a mother. And when girls, when women have girl children and they're from a practicing community, they will say to the woman, you know, something along the lines of don't even think about having yourself reinfibulated, as in sewn up after having a baby. And don't even think about cutting your girl because we'll be watching you. And it's the watching often goes on for 16 years for a girl's life. Now, in the UK, we don't have that. And I think on a lot of levels, that's a good thing not to um, potentially offer trauma to people. However, it does mean we don't get as many prosecutions as have been had in France. It also makes it quite difficult to actually find the perpetrator as well. In that particular case, there was quite a lot of evidence, but the evidence was quite complicated as well involved in um, witchcraft practices and that sort of thing as well. So it's quite difficult to distill out the different um, elements. I know there's been an increase in the use in law in the UK of it doesn't matter um, if you can't prove if a mother or father or an elder, an aunt or a grandma, say, were involved in the FGM but if you can prove that the parents were negligent in leaving the children alone or sending them overseas alone and they came back having been cut, then they would be responsible for that. And I think that's quite an interesting change in legal um, allowance, if you like, the allowance of that in, in, in law. How are we doing professionals awareness here in the UK? I know you've worked closely with the police Thinking back to your work also with the UK government, things like the first FGM summits as well. How are things developing and progressing here in the UK? I think they are going well. I think in terms of nurses and doctors, they're, I mean, pretty much now most people I talk to will have heard of FGM, certainly in a health context or schools. Um, it's mandatory to have training um, for teachers, for social workers. The general public still don't know about it enough. Um, therefore, neighbours are still at risk because they could be carrying out those things and people wouldn't know. I think there can always be more done. I think it still needs to be so that every 
medical doctors course will have it on every nursing course and midwives those sort of things I think still need to be improved but people will have heard about it but whether they're expert on it I think is a difference I think there are still loopholes around embassies and getting visas I think it probably needs more information to be provided around um if, if you're bringing your child, if you're taking your child out to be cut, they will be found on the way back, you know, that sort of thing. Sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. And I think we might talk about COVID later, but um, with COVID, of course, we've gone backwards, not forwards. And those sort of things make it more difficult as well. Well, let's unpack that a little bit now, because that idea of, of going backwards, not forwards, is this because people have been returning to traditional practices? Is it, is it because, you know, educational projects have had to be put on pause because of, of various lockdowns? What's, what's triggering it? A bit of both. I mean, I think in, say, in the UK, all domestic abuse, as well as FGM in an undercover setting has happened, has been able to be carried on at home. There have been increases in all the helplines that have been called for those sort of things as well. In a traditional setting, um, our contacts in Kenya and um, Uganda and others I've talked to have said literally um, women will go next door um, to each other, to neighbours and said, right, we're getting our girl cut next week. Do you want to get involved as well? That sort of conversation has been happening. I think also girls are, it, it, when there's been less money because of COVID and businesses aren't thriving, uh, an extra mouth to feed. If a girl can be cut and, so, uh, and sent off with a dowry, then that's one less mouth to worry about, really. So that's another reason. And then I suppose that, that's the main reason. You touched on it briefly earlier, this idea that in some parts of the world, cutting is done within a medical setting as well. So presumably there's profitability and with everything that's gone down with the pandemic, that could be another reason as to why we're seeing an increase again in FGM. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think um, in a traditional setting, you might associate it with income for religious buildings or blessings before or afterwards or funerals even afterwards you want to try and eradicate the whole income stream economically from this you will probably get chiefs who will get a proportion of a, a, a circumcisor's fees would be again who would not want it to be eradicated completely if that's part of his income you probably will get the income going up as well, whether it's going up in country and girls will be flown home for it or whether you'll get a circumciser flown to the UK for it for a group of girls all at once. So it's less obvious than flying families out and a girl coming back more poorly at the end of that trip. So they're moving targets, really. What about your 10-10-10 strategy and how that has been developed? Because compared to some other charities, you are still relatively young, but I like how you describe it. It's less of a baby these days, more of a teenager. And yet you have, you've achieved so many successes as described in your book. So let's start with the 10-10-10 strategy. Yeah, that was an idea that we had to set some decisions. And I thought, well, if we'd make even if we've got 28 countries, even if we made a 10% reduction in 10 countries in 10 years, that would be a pretty awesome thing to do. And actually, we measured ourselves at about year six. We're now at about sort of year, pretty much year 10, really. Um, year 12 of the organisation and year 10 of the um, charity. Um, and we, we 
decided that that would be achievable, it's very difficult to actually know. And of course, COVID will have probably meant progress has slowed. But we measured ourselves against UNICEF figures and, and, and our, our own figures as well. And we were um, well on target at year six and pretty much have been there in year 10 as well. There has been a, a reduction in FGM. And actually, the last few months, I've been involved in a couple of very um, high-powered strategic groups on research, one on the law with the Population Council and um, UNICEF, the UN, and one with the World Bank and others. And they're really just to look globally at picking 25, 30 people and saying, OK, around the world, let's get you all in a room together on a Zoom call and let's say, what can we do to make this really change? And where can we put the money for donors, donor projects to make a difference as well? And I think that's really a good idea. It's been a struggle, though, hasn't it, down the years? I mean, difficulties you describe in the book, just setting up as an organisation, trying to navigate where your place is in the third sector. But then when you think of what you've done internationally with the UN, thinking back to even trying to get FGM recognised with the Sustainable Development Goals. It has. And I don't don't know whether it's because as a, a charity with a leader that's that's not from a practicing community that's been a challenge you know I think that's an interesting dilemma as well as a white woman um what what do I have a voice at the table really so I think as a as an academic I can I can do that as a I have made my place and I think we are known 282 million is really well respected globally as one of the experts so that's a great success but I think in terms of um Having a voice in terms of things that are very visible, I think that we we probably would be have less of a, less of a a viewer view, um, presence on sort of TV and media things because there's a very much keenness to have a survivor voice talking on issues like that, and I can see there's a place for both actually, but I think that that they don't need to compete with each other. You know, it's a case of just getting the information out there. We picked a very difficult to fund area and it's just not funded research. Um, it's the bastion of academia and privilege. And um, to run a charity just doing research is always going to be un- unpopular in funding terms because you're not saving girls and saying those little stories like um, um, that we talked about earlier, like Hope and um, Fatima and... Um, Mary and stuff. We're not talking about those individuals where you can see a before and after photograph, really. But I don't think that's what the story is all about. The story is about making a systemic difference. I feel it's about being a small fish in a big global pond, not a big fish in a small village pond in one country. If you want to eradicate a practice that's gone on 2000 years, you can't stay in the village. And research and data is so key in informing and underlying policy decisions and when it comes to legislation internationally around the world. In the book, again, you reinforce, though, that each one of us can play a part in ending FGM. And thinking about British teacher Lydia, I mean, she was putting her passion, I guess, for teaching into, well, a very practical way. Not all of us can go and do this, but she ended up in Uganda, didn't she, working on some kind of safeguarding project? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's phenomenal, really, that a a young woman who was a teacher decided to go out and 
use her knowledge to um, go through her church and to find a project through us um, as a Christian teacher, just one summer to go out and teach safeguarding. And then from that, that tiny little acorn of teaching sort of 20 odd people, and then um, that swelled and going back again and seeing how that could go to several hundreds of people. And then I worked with a, a guy who was in that same country, World Shine, um, um, and, and brought the, the minister back, who was um, um, a reverend doctor out there, um, and, and brought him back to the Girls' Summit, actually, as a case study of what excellent work could happen, but also got a chance to speak to about 4,000 people. I mean, it's just like one of those scale issues. And I think that's just unheard of, really, that... Um, if you can do that, you can just, you can, each person can teach others and then the message carries on. I suppose that's what I learned about. It's very much sort of, I was thinking of the Jamie Oliver strategy. If you teach somebody something and they teach two more people, then you've got three people taught. I always um, honour him with that story. But you know, I, I remember thinking in the, ID, in the internally displaced people camp I worked in on the sort of Kenya-Somali border, if you can get, if there's two and a half thousand people, 250,000 people, I mean, and only only 60 of them have seen the light. If you get, how long would it take to take, turn the whole community? So those are the sort of numbers and issues I tried to grapple with to see what difference can we make. As you touch on the idea of legacy, we can't draw our conversation to a close without talking a bit about your own personal story throughout this as well, which is something very much explored in your book. We are talking today to Dr. Anne-Maria Wilson. It's Life Issues here on UCB. Her book is called Overcoming My Fight Against FGM, and it's published by Monarch. In the book, you share what a, a varied career you've had all sorts of environments you you mentioned hr earlier of course a lot of time in aid work stemming all the way back to childhood thinking about um your interactions with the red cross but also you talk a bit about you know the childhood trauma that you suffered as well then wind the clock on to i think it was was it 2015 that you had a cancer diagnosis through your journey what have been looking back the the signposts the the, the parts of your faith that you've had a real sense of conviction to keep going, to keep striving, despite so many hurdles that you've had to overcome? I think right from an earliest day, I've always had a faith in God. It's, it's gone on a circuitous path, but it's always been there and rock solid, really. I think I've had role models, both from the sisters in my convent school to Red Cross leaders and family members or um outside families, neighbours who were doing things really, and, and educators probably that saw that I could do something. And I think um, there was probably, I mean, just thinking when I was talking a, a few seconds ago, talking about the village pond, growing out of the village pond at 16, I left school to go and work in, a, in the city instead of being in the village pond. And I think I'd grown out of that village pond. All, and, I, and I suppose it was just a case of it almost felt that God was always calling me to do something larger, really. And I think if you, if I look back at the strands of my life, the path of education, doing a business degree, then doing psychology and doing cross-cultural studies, all those parts of the degree are all relevant. All those parts are relevant to me doing what I'm doing today. I couldn't be running a charity without all of those parts. I think there's also sort of me having had abuse as a small child, 
to try and make me right the wrongs of those things for others and perhaps give me an understanding and compassion for the hearts of people like Fatima, but also people with um, a, a terminal diagnosis like I've got in the hospice work I do at chaplaincy. So I suppose my own story is intertwined with all these things as well. But I think it's very much a case of writing this book was a sort of piece of my legacy. I wanted to make sure I'd done all the things I could in my time so that my work carries on beyond my years on this earth and that others can carry on and make time um, for them to make an impact as well. So I suppose that's something that I've had to come to terms with, my own mortality and those of others, that actually time is short on this planet. We never know what, how long we've got, and actually we have to make every day matter, every moment matter. And I think that's probably something I've learned as well over that journey. You've had a gruelling time with treatment for your cancer, but along the way, as you say, making the most of every moment, ticking off numerous things on the bucket list, which I think from what you've said in the book is is edging perhaps shorter these days. But I know you've got a wish list, no doubt, in, in being created. Now you are heading towards retirement and lots of discussions continuing as to what will happen next for 28 Too Many. Yes, I think the choices are, I mean, I always said I would do this charity for 10 years, even before I got my cancer diagnosis. I think it's long enough to be in the helm of as a founder director for 10 years. So I said, it's like, I'll do this for 10 years and then pass on to somebody else. But I think we'll either move into, we'll we'll either be part of a wider organisation or I'll have a successor. The board is thinking of that for sort of this year, next year. So that's probably going to happen. I think I've got a whole bunch of retirement projects. They're called retirement projects. I won't really retire as such. But the chaplaincy, I've got another role as a um, children's chaplain, just starting children's hospice chaplain. Um, My work at Marie Curie um, is carrying on. Um, I've got a role in my church as a pastoral role. So those sort of three things and the 28 too many role is quite enough for one, one retirement, I think, really. So those sort of things, I think, will be quite good (laughs) to go forward. It's certainly it's not going to quieten down every day for you. And it is it's an inspiration to hear how you keep studying and training and learning and most importantly, serving and giving to those individuals who need it most at the moment. Of course, 28tomany.org is a very important website, which I know Anne-Marie and the whole team would gladly like you to go and spend some time reading through their work and their research and wherever there is an opportunity sharing that with other people as well 28tomany.org Dr Anne-Marie Wilson thank you for being our guest here on Life Issues. Thank you Vicky it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure thank you. As we have learnt today, FGM can have both short-term and devastating long-term consequences, even proving fatal for some girls and women. There are more than 4 million girls globally still at risk of this, but it's thanks to people like Anne-Marie who've dedicated their lives to bringing this secretive practice, more than 2,000 years old, bringing it into the light. It's about understanding, education and also allowing girls and women to be given choice and control over their bodies and lives. Isn't that something worth protecting, something that we should add our voice to as well? Dr Anne-Marie Wilson's book is called Overcoming, My Fight Against FGM. Thank you for listening to another Life Issues on UCB.